The Guardian. Well, the Sydney Siege Inquest resumed today, and each day of this two-week period, we're going to have a quick catch-up about what exactly happened. And we are Friday Javor and... Me, Michael Safi. So, a coronial inquest is triggered by suspicious deaths and very often by deaths in police custody. So, this inquest is technically into the deaths of hostages Katrina Dawson and Tori Johnson, who died at the end of the Sydney siege, and also Man Haron Monis himself, who was the gunman. And the siege is set out in the inquest is set out in segments. The first segment is examining the gunman's character, Monis's character, how he came to walk into the cafe that last December, if he could have been prevented beforehand through a number of different avenues, um, i.e. his immigration, his mental health issues, uh, his court charges, should he have been out on bail. The next segment will look at the police response and if the police did the right thing and if they could have done things in their operation differently for a different outcome. And the third part will look at what actually happened in the cafe and that will be the when we hear from the hostages themselves and what they went through. And a few of them we haven't heard from publicly at all until now. Uh, and an inquest is, called, is set up very differently to a court in that it's not a sort of adversarial system. You don't have two sides trying to prove a point. It's kind of a bit more inquisitorial. So you have uh, a coroner who's Michael Barnes. He's sort of overseeing the whole process. And then I suppose his kind of, his attack dogs are, um, are the two counsel assistings, a senior and a junior. Um, and the senior one is Jeremy uh, Gormley, SC. And the junior is uh, Sophie Callan, and both of them um, interrogate witnesses and set out their kind of preliminary conclusions. But then fundamentally, everyone is trying to convince uh, Michael Barnes because it's he who writes, with the assistance of the two council assistings, it's he who writes that final report. And makes recommendations, which could change the way that police operate and, and all different types of laws. Exactly. We've been down for the first day today. So what struck you today? What do you think was the most interesting thing we heard? I think one of the, one of the very interesting things uh, about today was we, we heard details for the first time about the uh, many sex offences that, that Manharon Monas had been charged with in the, um, in the lead up to the siege last December. I mean, we heard details of the fact that he was earning something like $125,000 a year from this business that, I mean, I can't believe anyone would have thought that this was a legitimate business he was running for eight years and making tons of money doing it. Spiritual healing and clairvoyancy, looking to people's future. I thought I was struck by the ad that they, they read out to us. It's like, have you found the right person? Do you want to know if the man or woman you're seeing is right? Do you wonder why you're still single? Like appealing to these very basic human insecurities, I guess, but I would think that you'd be getting a lot of vulnerable people coming through your doors with that sort of thing. We also heard about how exactly Man Monis kind of operated in this business and it was a matter of telling women that they were cursed and that it was something like sexual energy was required in order to sort of exercise whatever demons or whatever black magic they had had. And it's just incredible that this, that the guy pulled it off for that long that, you know, it took nearly a decade for charges to be laid. Yeah, so he'd get them to get partially undressed mostly completely undressed and he'd leave the room like a doctor and then come back in and then start painting them with water and we heard that the sexual offenses ranged from inappropriate touching to to full penetration and all of this i think leads into one of the big questions that this inquest will try to figure out which was how did this guy manage to to be on bail on december 15 2014 given the fact that he had these offenses so a, a judge knew that he was charged with these sorts of offenses and on top of that, he had been charged with being an accessory before and after the fact to the murder of his ex-wife. And so 
in that sense, what we heard today, I think, really raises questions about, you know, without getting too tabloid here, how is this guy on the streets? What does it take to not be, not be granted bail? And it takes uh, violence or offences against women, obviously. Yeah, well. Brady, what about you? What else, what else jumped out at you today? Um, uh, he, he's two things. His mental health history, which I was, I, we, we all assumed was there, but we actually haven't had it confirmed. But also what struck me was that the council assisting said that the mental history was making up a, a modest part of their investigations and he actually said be careful about putting this all down to mental health because it's, it doesn't look like it's going that way. And I must say, even reporting this, I kind of felt uncomfortable because it, it, we did hear that he had been assessed with, with schizophrenia, with people suggested he was paranoid, he'd had depressive episodes. But of course, there are loads of people out there with mental illnesses and it's only a very tiny fraction who go out and do what man Haron Monas did. So I, I can understand where... Uh, uh, the coroner was coming from there because it was something that I felt too, you know, we can't put too much much on because it explains a little, but at the same time, I mean, it, it doesn't explain kind of the criminal behaviour that he regularly in, indulged in, it seemed to me. Exactly. It seems like it's going to end up being lots and lots of strains of his personality coming together in 2014 where the coroner said today in 2014 his life was spiralling out of control, direct quote. And it, there seems to be lots of factors. He had delusions of grandeur. He did have mental health problems, but also he couldn't find full-time work. He lost custody of his two sons, which were born in Australia. So it's lots and lots of things building up onto each other into this like weird, perfect storm of circumstance. And he was also facing, he was out on bail, but it looked like he was going to be found guilty on those sexual assault charges. And he was facing a very lengthy time in prison too. And, uh, you know, I think that was one of the real challenges that the lawyers involved here faced, which is how do you create a narrative out of somebody whose life has so many sort of disparate threads to it. I mean, he's such a difficult guy to make sense of. And I, I got the same sense that you did, which was that they built up this idea that a lot had gone wrong for this guy over 10 years. But by 2014, it looked like he was really at the end of the road. And there was that, you know, really um, powerful kind of monologue from Jeremy Gormley at the end where he talked about the fact that this man had, um, he, he had, he was in debt. He had no money, no properties, no friends, no following. And it all seemed to kind of be leading towards him walking into the Lint Cafe with a shotgun. And I thought that there was also a very weird moment today, weird being the exact right word, when we found out that he joined a bikey gang yeah. for a few months, the Rebels Motorcycle Gang, but they deemed him too weird. And, the, and that's what Jeremy was mentioning in his powerful monologue at the end as well. He did try to join various organisations, such as the bikies, but also the Islam community, the Muslim community had rejected him as well because they thought that he was out serving himself rather than Islam. But I thought that, and it was a, interesting insight into his personality as well because he started dressing completely differently and he was very willing to adopt the ethos of the bikies very quickly and I think that that showed a very interesting aspect of his personality too. Doesn't it? And it also goes to just how, I mean, what a danger a group like ISIS presents because they do give unstable people like Manharon Monas the kind of motifs to go out and do what he did. They say, you know, if you want to go out and commit violence, well, here's this vehicle for you. Here's the justification. Here's, you know, here's the sort of flag you can put up in the window. And I mean, it really, I think it, it feeds into a second really big issue um, of this inquest, which is, um, do we consider what happened that day to be terrorism or not? And, and I think, look, there's a, a long way to go, but just based on what we heard today, it would be very difficult, I think, to be able to say that someone like Manharon Monas committed a terrorist attack that day because he just seemed like a guy who would have joined whatever cause and would have embraced him. From what we've heard today, and we are at the very beginning, it certainly didn't seem like he was 
motivated by religious beliefs or any type of fundamentalism. Actually, what we heard today and what we're going to be hearing over the next two weeks as well, without wanting to um, sound like I'm trying to elicit sympathy for the man, he just sounded... It sounded like we were dealing with a very, very lost human being. Mm, yeah, absolutely. One thing I, I, I think we didn't hear today, which will also be, I think, again, one of these key issues and some of the key questions that you profiled last week was about the uh, police response to what happened and this idea that, you know, if, if, again, if they hadn't have thought that what was happening was terrorism, would they have reacted differently? And, you know, we've heard that they went in there and fired sort of over 20 shots in a fairly kind of enclosed space and some have questioned whether that you know, that, that could have been approached differently. And I, I wonder whether, you know, had he been um, Manharon Monas the biker instead of Manharon Monas the Islamic State jihadi, would the entire approach, would this whole story be different? That's certainly going to be one of the more fascinating, fascinating aspects of it. Would different people have been called in? And did they make the right call waiting it out as, a, or as opposed to should they have stormed it before it ended? Yeah, yeah. And look... I think partly this will, I mean, these questions will be examined, but I suppose at the end of it, we'll come out of it, hopefully with a better appreciation of, I guess, you know, how difficult this job is for the police. I mean, this isn't about blaming them. This is about trying to understand how can we as a community approach this whole issue better. Yeah, and I guess tomorrow we're just we're going to be getting a fraction more of an insight into his character and I'll be talking to you again at the end of tomorrow. Look forward to it. For more great downloads, head to theguardian.com slash audio.